Hello, Stitchers. Welcome to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women's Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. I'm a fourth-generation sewing enthusiast with more than 20 years of sewing experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation, so sit back, relax, and get ready to get your stitch together. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Stitch Please podcast. I am your host, Lisa Woolfork, and as I say for every episode, this is a very special episode, and I mean that especially, especially today, because I am talking with Aja Barber, who is not only smart, fierce, creative, such an active and productive and creative teacher, She also has recently created this amazing and gorgeous book in my favorite colors. Oh, look at that one. That's uh, that's the British version. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, so this is the American version. That's the, that's the North America. And then this is like Europe and like Australia. So yeah. I like our version better because we like, I like bright (laughs) colors. It's like teal. Teal is like my favorite color. I could have kept them the same. But I actually really liked both covers a lot. And so I was like, oh, let's just let's just do it. Yeah. So I, I really, I like the American cover. I think you made the right decision. <laughs> not only has she had this gorgeous book in two distinct different covers, she also narrates the audio version of the book. So you really feel like you're traveling along with her throughout this journey. Aja, welcome to the Stitch Please podcast. And thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited about this. Y'all, this just shows you that it pays to shoot your shot. Aja came on Instagram Live to do something completely of her own will and volition. And she was on for like three minutes. And I was like, real quick, real quick. Can you please be on the podcast? Like I typed it as fast as I possibly could. And I and then she hung up. I was like, oh no, she didn't see it. But then she did, y'all. I, was, <laughs> I took screenshots. I shared with friends. I did not respond like a cool cucumber. I was fangirling. It was, it was a moment. I think I messaged you. It was like, yeah, this is my publicist's information. <laughs> yes, yes. And I was just like, ah! Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. I am so glad to be here. I want to start actually with the very beginning of your book. Now, the name of the book, everybody, is Consumed, The Need for Collective Change. And it talks about colonialism, climate change, and consumerism. And you talk about your grandmothers in the beginning of the book. It's just like as an acknowledgement. And because y'all, Aja narrates the book, you can hear the love in your voice when you read this scene, when you said to the grandmothers I've known in this lifetime who have taught me so much and lived more sustainably than anyone I know. And then in parenthesis, you said, Grammy, you would be so proud. My goodness, you tell everyone. She would. My Grammy would brag on you. She would brag. She would brag on you. If you had an accomplishment and you told my grandmother, she was like everyone's cheerleader. She'd be like, do you know what she did today? And so, yeah, she would, there would not be a person within a 10 mile radius that wouldn't know that her granddaughter wrote a book. (laughs) And what a book it is. And, and so the book, it seems it's, di- it's divided into two sections and it's like you are trying to, to kind of make a case for all of us to be better and to make a case for us to make daily decisions in order to make the world more sustainable for everybody. That seems like a very simple idea. Why do you think it's so vexed? Why do you think that But talking about these things, about consumer habits, about what you buy, what you don't buy, why do you think that strikes people so deeply? Oh, because consumerism is sold to us from the minute we arrive in this planet. Like, honestly, it is scary how like my niece, when she was like three years old, she knew how to swipe my credit card. Consumerism is sold to us through like media, movies books and there's a whole movie called shopaholic and it's based on a series of books based on a series of books and it is sold the hardest of course to cisgender women you know like we are told women be shopping which I laugh like I use that phrase jokingly but like 
there's a bit of truth to that, this idea. And there's also this idea that if you are a woman who doesn't like shopping, you must be broken. What's wrong with you? You know? And so consumerism is so heavily woven into us. And there's this just underlying message that consumerism is a part of your identity. And so when you're asking people to change the ways in which they interact with some of these systems, I think sometimes it can feel like we're asking them to like change their identity, but in actuality, the farther you get from interacting with the system as a consumer, I think the more you get parts of yourself back. Yes. And I mentioned this to my students last week. I said, you know what? It is very hard to sell a free person anything. If you are free, if you define yourself as someone who is free, you will be a lot less susceptible to marketing, to email incentivizing, to discounts, to sales, and to the must-have item. None of that is going to appeal to you because so much, I think, of consumerism and capitalism more generally is based on insecurities. Yes. You have an insecurity that can only be solved by buying something. You're an imperfect person. So you need to uh, sort it out by doing this, that, and the other. Your body will never be perfect. Your wardrobe will never be perfect. You are not good enough. You won't get that job if you don't get a new outfit. That person won't fall in love with you if you wear that. All your friends will laugh and call you a loser if you don't have the newest style of this, that, and the other. Oh, yes. It feeds on our insecurity. And at the same time, we're told that, like, you should like this. You should enjoy this. This should be fun. But in actuality, I have never felt more happy and free than when I stopped buying fast fashion. (laughs) But I didn't think I would feel that way. I didn't think at first. No. It's interesting because and I'm hoping that we'll, we, and of course, y'all, because we are a sewing podcast and we will talk about the sewing. That's one of the reasons I, I invited Aja to the program because I wanted to talk about sewing and sustainability and some of the stuff and foibles that we have in the sewing community. But before we get there, I'm very interested in, as you were saying, because your book is, you know, bicultural, the fact that it's like American based, but also British based that so much of one's national identity, like you were talking about after the tragedies of 9-11, that George Bush, when he went to advise people about how we can deal with and rebuild as a country, we could have, like you said, people could have turned to, you know, grieving. They could have- Praying. Um, had praying. Mourning. Uh, workshops. Hanging out with morning, friends and family. National day of mourning. No, shop. Um, shop. No, go shopping. And the same is true in terms of COVID. Like you were talking COVID about over here, Rishi Sunak said the same thing. And it, it seemed like the UK's favorite thing to do is to relax restrictions, particularly around the holiday season, only to threaten to put the lockdown when the holiday comes. And it almost feels like the relaxing of the restrictions is tied to the economy and making sure that we're all getting out and spending that money, getting into stores. And then, you know, last, the Christmas before last, you know, everything was free and open only for them to go back into lockdown Christmas day, which is the day when it's supposed to matter most, when you're supposed to be with your loved ones, when you're supposed to, I mean, if you celebrate Christmas, obviously not everyone does, but it just felt a bit like let them out to build the economy. And then when the actual holiday comes, shut it down again, which is cruel. Yes. And this idea that somehow one's participation in the national project of nation building doesn't come from voting. It doesn't come from paying your taxes. It doesn't come from other- It certainly doesn't if you're you're Donald Trump. (laughs) It doesn't come from civic engagements because you were on the Lions Rotary Club or because you were in a guild. It all comes from how you spend your money. Spending money, buying that you should. And I think our society tells us from a very young age that like you should always be thriving for bigger and better. That's the American way. You should always want a bigger house. We don't talk about contentment as much as we talk about striving for more in our society. And once I began to sort of unpack that within myself, which I did in my 20s, 
all of a sudden I began to see everything differently because I remember thinking in my twenties, I, I never made, you know, good money. I was always sort of in and out of work, moving in and out of my parents' basement. And I remember feeling very much like a loser because peers were buying property and, you know, little known to me at the time, a lot of those peers were buying property with their parents' money and pretending like it wasn't, you know, and and that's really sucky. But anyways, I felt like a big old loser. And I remember asking myself, like, what do I need to be happy? What would make me happy? What amount of money would I need? And so I started to really do the math and be like, okay, if I made this amount of money, I could get on the property ladder. If I did this, I could, I could do that. And once I began to really understand that I didn't actually need all the money in the world, all of a sudden my entire worldview of what I should be striving for, what I should do with my life completely changed. Yes. Yes. Once I realized I would never want a helicopter or jet or any of that crap, or even like five houses, the idea of having to maintain that much property actually isn't that appealing to me because then you have to hire staff to maintain the property. And if you're a busy person making all that money so you can pay for all that stuff, you don't even get to enjoy that stuff. Yes. You know? And so the more I began to think about these things, the more I began to feel like ostentatious wealth was actually quite gauche, you know? And like, I think a show that does a really good job of pointing that out is Secession. Oh. I don't know if you've watched it, I've but it's not watched really, Secession. That's a, is, is it Showtime? It's, uh, I think so. It, we can get it over here on Sky, but it really okay. makes it all very unappealing. You're like, oh, they're all so unhappy and miserable and just gross, you know? And so I had that realization in my twenties that like, I didn't want all the money. I just wanted enough money to survive. And I think most people will find that that's what we actually want, but our society doesn't allow for us to really have those thoughts. It sort of tells you, you should always want to be the media mogul who's written about in Forbes and this and that. And it's like, no, I don't want that at all, actually. Right. And, and what I appreciate about what you're asking us to think about by identifying consumerism as a component of our identity formation, it just goes to show, at least it shows me, the seductive nature of capitalism, as well as all of the other interlocked systems of oppression that go mm-hmm. with capitalism and how we go to support them. You know, I mean, there's a reason that they sell things for kids like little tiny cash registers so they can practice shopping. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I had one of those when I was a kid, funny enough. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And I think about my life as it is. And me and my partner, we don't have all the money. We didn't come from extreme generational wealth of any type, but we have a really good life. And I think that's what most people want. Like, you know, if you have a healthcare system, which is something the UK definitely has going for it, then you, it really changes your quality of life. If you don't have to worry about those sorts of things, you know, we, we live in a small flat, but hopefully we'll be moving soon. We have enough money where we can go out for a nice dinner every now and then, Mm -hmm. you know, if we, if, if the world were open and people were going on holiday, we could go on holiday. We could do some really nice things. And that's really all I've ever wanted out of life. Right. Like make memories, like having would, experiences. It, having experiences, being able to pay your bills, you know, maybe being able to care for your loved ones. Like I think my greatest goal would be to be able to take care of my parents because they both still work and they're, they're in their seventies. And I would like for them to be able to just enjoy life and not worry about money and bills, you know? Yes, I hear that. Especially as you talk about in the book, they were always there for you, like a a backbone for you that allowed you to help to pursue these dreams. So for example, in the book, you talk about the completely exploitative nature of many aspects of the fashion industry, but most notably in my reading, the internship. Yes. The internship, which really you said costs most people around $30,000 to do. Yeah, there was a study done by some students and they sort of asked around and, you know, quizzed their peers and surveyed their peers. And it was like, yeah, I think it was like 30 something thousand dollars that the average student will spend on doing free internships. 
which means that the internship system is a classist system because for the students that don't have that money, they can't do the internship. That's but right. if you need to do the internship to get in the door, then you can't get in the door, which means exactly. that you've just created an entire problem where only a certain class of people can work in that industry if the free internship is the requirement for entry. Yes. The idea that unpaid labor is somehow mandatory and that you have to be able to work for free in order to participate is a huge barrier. And at least to my understanding, that's not because the system is broken. That's because the system is working exactly as intended. Exactly. The amount of times that people would be like, you should do an internship. I was like, I need a job. I got really tired of being told that in my 20s. Like, no, I have to pay my bills. My parents aren't going to just deposit money into my account. That's not how it works in my family. We don't have it like that, you know? So just this idea. And even when I did do internships, I would scrimp and save and you know, had three jobs. I had three jobs in university and that was not the only time in my life where I've had three jobs. And so in order to get the experiences to even be here talking about this stuff, often I had to go above and beyond in a capitalistic society because I don't come from a pile of wealth. Right. I think one of the beautiful contributions of your book is that you are able to walk us through this story of your own growth and development within the fashion industry, as well as your decision to step outside of that. Can you talk a bit about how the world of social media, how the world of your blog, for example, made it possible for you to move more independently? And how that might, I don't know, I just think that just is, that feels really a, a really important part of your journey. So it does allow you to move independently, but even social media has a barrier for entry that people don't want to acknowledge, right? I'm on Instagram. My Instagram took off when I moved to the UK because there is something very appealing about a Black American living in London. As something appealing about a foreigner in any city. Okay. And on top of that, I'm married to a British person. So there's, there's that appeal to that. Additionally, my partner takes most of my photos and he's a really good photographer <laughs> and he's got a good camera. That's a barrier for entry that people don't acknowledge. So we act like social media is just anyone can do anything, but it hasn't been that way for a very long amount of time where everyone's taking pictures on their iPhone. That's just not the reality. Or even having the time to create a reel. I put an outfit reel up today. That outfit reel took me an hour to do. You know, for someone who has a full-time job on top of other responsibilities, maybe they're a parent, where are they going to get that free time? And so I think we need to really talk honestly, even about like the barriers for entry in order to stand out on social media, because it's just having the time to write and to come up with these things. I mean, my platform grew because I moved to the UK and I couldn't work here because I didn't have my settlement visa. Oh, right. Okay. I had to wait until I got my settlement visa after we got married. And then I was able to work. So you have a time period where you can't do anything. And I had saved a bunch of money to be able to live here because I knew that my partner's salary couldn't support us both. But I wasn't going to spend that money because anytime you leave your front door in London, you sneeze a 20 pound note out of your nostril, you know, it's an expensive city. And so I started to write because you've just got nothing else to do, but It's a privilege to be able to have a chunk of time where you can actually really formulate and get a platform up and running. And so I would argue that, yes, in some ways, social media does make certain things a little bit more democratic. But in other ways, I think there are still barriers for entry that we do not talk about that we should talk about. I agree. I And one of the reasons, actually, you helped me considerably I just started my Patreon maybe, I think, a year ago. I had started it when I started the podcast back in 2019, but I didn't pay attention to it really. And I was just like, I just don't know if I want to do this or how. And, you know, and I'm like, how am I going to get money to sustain this project? But do I really need it? 
but you came on and you were you were this was when you you came on instagram and you said y'all i have a patreon and i am not going to continue to give so much of what i'm doing for free on yeah. this platform that helps build and sustain instagram and also facebook but doesn't give me aja anything material to sustain this what i'm doing and so instead i'll come out here every so often but if you really want to connect with me you should sign up for my patreon and Absolutely. i was like that is a genius idea <laughs> well, I, here's- I don't know why it struck me I, I, again people had t- told me for a while like you should try you should try it and i was like i don't have the energy i don't have the time yeah but you made it make sense and that you can move ethically through this process and not feel like you had to make concessions that you didn't feel comfortable with. Could you say more about why it's so important? The reason why I really took that route is because a lot of the ways of monetizing, monetizing Instagram are through the most unethical companies ever. And so when it's like, Hmm. I'm talking about ethics and sustainability and I'm giving real talk. I can't then turn around and be like, hashtag ad, hashtag sponsored by the very same company that's ripping off the garment workers that I'm talking about. I just can't do that. I can't. And so for me, I had really reached a rock and a hard place. And it was funny because my platform started to take off. And I remember my partner at the time, we were pretty broke. Like I always say broke, not poor, because we have plenty of resources. We have, you know, parents who can, you know, try and help where they can. I mean, they can't pay our bills, but you know what I mean? We've got resources and we need to move back in with our parents. We could do that, but we were pretty broke. We had gone through a wedding, which we went very low key on the wedding, a visa, which was very expensive hiring lawyers. And we had only had one of us who could have a job during that time period. So we were pretty hard up for some cash at that time. And my partner was a bit like, so your Instagram's taking off. How are you going to, what are you going to do? You need to do something with this, you know? And I kind of was like, I can't. And I remember we were having beers one night at a, we were at a pub and someone had actually recognized me off of Instagram, which was nice. And we were having a chat and Steve had said to me, at the time he knew that like, you know, 10,000 pounds would have made a huge difference in our circumstances. Yeah. And so he was like, so, you know, I know you don't want to monetize this with, with, with fast fashion. If H&M came to you and offered you $10,000 to work with them, what would you do? Oh. And I remember like biting my fist and then I was like, I would say no, because they're really bad. And at that point, he was like, okay, well, then if you literally turned down that money, then we need to come up with an alternative way yes. of yes. monetizing what you're building. Because yes. clearly, you know, Instagram's getting something from you being there, yes. but you're not. And so yes. I basically told people, look, I'm not going to monetize this space in a traditional way. To this day, I only have one sponsor, and that's Bestiaire Collective. They're a fashion resale site. I can get behind that. There's a lot of clothing that needs to be resold. Right. But I, I leveled with my readership and said, I'll keep posting here semi-daily if a bunch of you sign up to Patreon, basically. I'll keep it going here because I enjoy writing and interacting with you all, yeah. but I can't do it for free. Like I live in one of the world's most expensive cities. You sure do. Yeah. So people really responded to that. And I think it was a right place, right time thing, because for me... I could see that there was a gap in the market where people wanted information about sustainability, but they wanted it untainted. And for a lot of people that had social media platforms, maybe they talk about sustainability on this day, but then the next day they'd be working with Amazon, you know? And so I saw that if I could say, look, I won't do that. I won't work with any of the brands that if it's a brand that you think that I would drag, there'd be no way I would take money from them. Right. But, you know, if you all would sign up here, I'll give you more stuff and I'll give you more information, more conversation. Yes. And people really took to that. So yeah. it was a really, it was a right place, right time, seeing a gap in the market moment for me, which I've never, I've only had one of those in my life. <laughs> hey friends. Hey, what are you doing on Thursday around 3 PM or so? You got 30 minutes to hang out with Black Women's Stitch? You got 60? If so, come through for 30-Minute Thursdays. 
Thursdays, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can chill with Black Women Stitch on Instagram Live or talk with us through the two-way audio on Clubhouse at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's Thursdays for 30 minutes. Come hang out, chill, and have fun with us. See you Thursday. I'm glad you hit it when you did. I really glad I'm really glad because what you are offering is such a generous invitation. And it's to look within and to understand that all the decisions that we make are interconnected all around the globe. It's a pretty awesome responsibility when you really pause to think about it. And that's one of the things that globalization has done is that even though it's made like a lot of people billionaires, right? Yeah. Quite a few billionaires. Lots, lots of people. It has also, at least to me, proven that we are connected. And I really appreciate the campaigns that you emphasize in your work about who makes your clothes. That, and when you say that everyone needs to know what's in the things that they're buying in the same way that you have nutrition facts on a product that you purchase at the store. What do you think people are most surprised by if they were to buy a garment and flip the tag over and see the nutritional facts, what are some facts you think they might be shocked by? When, like if I'm, go- I'm at Old Navy and I'm buying a pair of pullover sweater for $15. They would be shocked by the fact that the fashion industry collectively produces 100 billion garments a year, which is almost 14 times the human population currently. And that 100 billion comes from a stat in 2014. So we know it means that the number is probably higher in 2022. They would be shocked by the waste. This is the thing. These companies can waste millions of dollars a year in unsold merchandise, fabric, that sort of stuff, but they can't pay garment workers. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Are you, and the companies themselves, and I've been in the rooms before to hear these, these weak excuses will say things like, well, you know, it's not our fault that, you know, exploitation happens. Well, they won't say it's not our fault. They'll say the exploitation happens because the the factories that we work with will outsource the labor to another factory. And that other factory might be exploiting people. That's their way of saying, well, it's not our fault, but here's where it is your fault. It's your fault because you know that the order that you're giving that factory cannot be fulfilled in the time limit in which you want it. You know that the price that you were asking for has drilled this factory to the place where they probably can't pay everyone because you're paying 20 cents for a t-shirt and you've got this massive order and you want it quickly, you know, so You can say that it's not your fault that this sort of outsourcing of labor happens within supply chains, but I would argue that you know what you're doing when you whittle them down to a price that's so low that you know that living wages can't be accomplished. So I would argue it's definitely their fault and they're just pretending like it's not, but people would be surprised to know about those practices. And the problem is, is that all of these companies, all the stuff that I'm telling you they know it. They know it. It's yes. never, it should never be a surprise when an unsafe factory collapses on top of garment workers. Because if you shorten your supply chain and invest in the places where you make the clothing, invest in the factories, invest in the people, make some of those people your employees so yes. they have the same benefits that your other employees in the global north have, then that sort of stuff wouldn't happen, right? Right. And what I also appreciate is that you also make it not only the, of course, the responsibility of the factories Mm -hmm. and the companies and corporations and the brands, but also the consumers, that consumers have power. You've made this beautiful phrase when you talk about the the ladder of the supply chain and that brands are really concerned about about their reputation Mm-hmm. and that they don't want to be associated with something that looks bad. Also, the power of writing letters that if yeah. they get enough mail about something, then they, they have to address it. it. <laughs> yeah. And it's been surprising to me how little people do actually interact with brands. And I've got an example of, of this. Back in the day, there was this photographer who I won't name him, but if you look him up, you, you can find him. 
and he used to take pictures for all the magazines and he was a pervert. He harassed models. He did really creepy, gross things that were very well documented. And after all this came out, magazines continued to use him as well as companies like H&M continued to use him. There was, there was literally, it was one of those things where one girl was just like, Hey, guess what happened when I shot with this photographer? And then all the other stories started to come yes. out as well. Oh, he it did was, that to me was, too. He made me do me, that too. It was me too before me too. Oh. This was like way before me too. But all these stories came out and no one did anything. H&M continued to work with them. Magazines continued to work with them. It was, he, nothing happened. You know, I called out H&M and this was back before I had a platform and called their corporate headquarters and said, I want to launch a complaint. Why is so-and-so doing your campaign when it has come out that this, this man is a predator, you know, to yeah. young women? The person logged my complaint. And then a few days later, I called back just to see if there was any follow-up. And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, you were the person that called about the photographer. Wow. You were the person meaning no one else had. Wow. And so that's an indicator that there's a lot of inaction going on on our part as like citizens, you know? And it was really shocking to me that I was the only person that was like, why are you continuing to work with someone when there is a documented history of abuse going on here? Wow. And you were the only person. And, and the fact that they, I'm the just, fact I, that they said were, you were the person that called. About, you. Yeah. Wow. And they were like, yeah, we passed your complaint up the line. And I'm just like, great. Now imagine if 2000 people called them about that. Right. What sort of response would we have gotten then? It would yes. have been a much different response. Much di- wow. And I've seen H&M respond to complaints in social media backlash. A good example of this was in 2020, Fashion Rev put out their transparency index. So for those of you that don't know what the transparency index is, it rates the biggest brands in the world about how transparent they are. Now, transparency doesn't equal sustainability or ethics or any of that stuff. Basically means you're willing to open your books and give them the information that you know. Okay. So H&M ranked the top at the transparency index as far as being open. Okay. Now you can be open about putting glass in someone's food. It doesn't mean you're doing anything good. <laughs> you know what I mean? I could be very transparent and be like, oh, what's in this dish glass? You know, yes, so exactly. like- It's because I hate people. So yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, I'm the most transparent person in the world. It doesn't <laughs> equal sustainability. It doesn't equal ethics. It doesn't really equal anything except the fact that you were very open. Additionally, in order to be rated on the Fashion Rev Transparency Index, you as a company have to sell $400 million of stuff a year, merchandise. So who isn't going to be rated on the sustain on the transparency index? Every single sustainability brand that I like and know, yeah. because they're not making $400 million, $400 million. in profits a year. But they, that also means that they're not a sizable, they're not a, a significant polluter as yeah. well. Because when you're moving that much merchandise, you're doing a lot more damage than a brand like Laura Jean, for instance. And so H&M writes this social media post. H&M is the most transparent brand in the world. And then they hashtag, hashtag sustainability. Now, why did they do that? They did that because they think the general public is too ignorant to tell them one, you're misleading people, right? You're lying. Like one, you were not the most transparent brand in the world because you are the most transparent out of the big corporate polluters. Congratulations. (laughs) Here's your medal for being open, but also being horrible, horrible, you know, (laughs) two transparency will never equal sustainability at all. So to hashtag it sustainability, that's really, really deceitful. That's, that's, mis- that's willfully misleading the general public, because yeah. if you have a sustainability team of 250 people, which I think they do, wow. everybody on that team knows that transparency doesn't equal sustainability. So a <laughs> bunch of us with social media platforms just went after them on social media. We were relentless. We were on all of their posts. 
People wrote blogs about them. And you know what? They sure did turn that around and apologize. But even their apology was so disingenuous because they said, oh, we made a mistake. That's what they said. And I, I just think it's so funny because I bet you at least 10 different people green light their social media posts. Before yeah, they yeah. So, you know, they're making it seem like they're me. They're an individual. They just made a little boo-boo. Yes. Not that they, not that they didn't deliberately mislead the general public about the, the claims of transparency index, which Fashion Revolution also wrote a post and said that they were disappointed with the ways in which H&M was misleading the general public about the findings of their report. And so yes. basically, if you have enough outcry, you can sort of bend these brands in the ways in which you want to. But in the past, Whenever I've had issue with something, I've never felt like I had an army behind me. And now I feel like I have that army. Aja's army, y'all. Aja's <laughs> army. Check out it, her Patreon so you can check so, out more. There's so many people, though, that are really doing the work. It, it is not just me. It's so many. And I think when you have a few people who have a platform and a voice and they're, they're using it in a certain way, we're powerful together, yes. you know? It's very true. And you really proved that when you talked about, you talked about two hashtags that you had done earlier that went viral. And one was on the heels of Trayvon Martin's murder. Um, it was Tamir Rice's murder. Tamir Rice. Look at yeah. me. Look at me. It, yeah, look at these two boys. Same first initial. Two boys. Two boys. Yeah. And can you believe it's been 10 years since Trayvon Martin's death? I, I can't murder. believe it. Murder. I can believe it. I remember that verdict. I was in bed for two days. I couldn't. It still feels fresh to me because I'm yeah. still mad as hell about it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It still feels fresh for it's me. So, it's so hard. And for me, I look at those boys I, I look at my boys and it's just, it's, it's very difficult to do, you know, just being a, a black person in this country yeah. and a black person that loves other black people and parents, some of them. And, you know, it's just, it's very painful. And, and you do that so apparent in the, do you think it was like America in five words? Yeah, that was the hashtag. And, you know, you know, I live in the UK and when making the decision with my partner, where we were going to live, all of that played into the factors, you know, there's a lot of reasons why I live here. Healthcare is something I enjoy having and I want, I want that for everyone. Now I'm not saying it's a perfect society without racism, please, this country invented colonialism. Yes. But I want to live in a country where my child doesn't have to go through active shooter training in preschool. Yes. Yes. I want to live in a society where there are not as many guns. I just don't want it. And so coinciding with becoming an age of, you know, becoming a maternal age and, and having Black Lives Matter be such a prominent part of, you know, the things that I was seeing and how I was consuming media, I just thought, you know what, I might hedge my bet somewhere else. And I, I think you made the good choice. Mm-hmm. I really do. And, and also, the, I love how in the book you had to explain to the British readers that, hey, guess what, y'all, if you happen to come down with cancer, you could be bankrupt in America because yeah. the hospitals will sue you for every dime of the money that you do not have to pay them. Yes. Yes. I mean, I had a friend when I was in my twenties, this was a very privileged friend who didn't have health insurance. And, you know, his parents have been saying he signed up for health insurance and he just put it off. Anyways, his appendix ruptured and he ended up in the hospital and his parents had to pay his bill out of pocket. And it was $14,000. And they were like, you owe us, you know what I mean? But he was lucky because he had privileged parents that actually had $14,000 to slap down on a bill where I don't know too many people that are in that situation. I agree. A lot of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Exactly. And it's absolutely true. And the thing that I find so interesting about this is that even as we recognize and identify all of these things that are wrong with this system, when we recognize and we can see that there's exploitation, when we can see there is something about the seductive nature of capitalism that still tells us, if you buy, you'll feel better. Just yeah. a little retail therapy. That's Just a little. Retail ther- exactly. Retail therapy. That's the phrase. When in actuality, can buying things replace actual therapy? Absolutely not. That's called dopamine. And don't get me wrong. 
I love a dopamine kick, but I don't get that through buying clothing anymore where I think that perhaps the clothing might have been made in exploitative measures. Yes. It becomes a buzzkill for real. Exactly. You, it's like, I would enjoy this a lot more if there was less oppression in it. And now I can't unsee it. Once you really start to like really internalize the messaging and understanding that like this is all sort of built on a bubble of exploitation, I can't unsee it. Like I couldn't walk into a fast fashion store and buy something even if I wanted to right now because I read about this stuff and write about it constantly and it really it I wouldn't say it takes the fun out of it because was it really that much fun to begin with or was I just participating in something that had been sold to me I enjoy more the thrill of finding a vintage secondhand item that I really, really want and, and putting a lot of effort into, you know, how am I going to wear this? You know, shopping secondhand and doing stuff online, it really slows you down made to measure. You got to wait for that item to be made. And you just, you know, you spend a lot of time thinking about it where a lot of my fast fashion purchases, there was very little thought sometimes behind the purchase. It was all about the dopamine. And then you talked about of all the things, like, you know, you said, you mentioned that these brands, they spend, they, you know, they make a $400 million minimum in order to be part of that index. They mm-hmm. sell so many products. They make so many products and we they buy waste so, so many products. They waste so many. But like, I think that one of the stats you shared was that after, if we buy something and then six months later, how much of that stuff is used still? After yeah. six months. And I, so I was listening. I was like, oh, okay, 20%. And you were like, not 20. And yeah. it was one. Yeah. One That's from, percent. that is from the story of stuff, which I recommend everybody. Story of stuff. On okay. YouTube. It's free. It's an animated video about consumer markets and our stuff. And the story of stuff tells you that 1% of consumer goods are still in circulation six months after being purchased. Which makes me think about everything now that I buy. I think about things in terms, and there's been a few things, you know, writing and reading about all this stuff constantly helps. Moving overseas definitely helps because I really had to decrease my my possessions, but I wanted to do it thoughtfully because I knew about all these systems. And so, you know, now if I'm in a shop and I feel tempted to buy anything, I ask myself a series of questions. One, if I outgrow this item, will it have any value to anyone else? Two, would I move this overseas? Like if I had to like pick the best of the best, would this be something that I would, could be bothered to move overseas? You know, three, if this is sitting in a charity shop after I've used it, is it actually appealing to someone else in any way? And once I work through all of these questions, nine out of 10 times, I leave the store empty handed. <laughs> wow. It's so powerful and so important to do because the things that you buy, they will, they, they kind of follow you. They and like, they'll be on this planet for longer than we will, especially if they're made out of plastic. That was one of the things that I wanted to get, we could, we could pivot now and talk a little bit more about sewing because I tend to, I, this, this is, again, I'm going to just full disclosure, full confession. I tend to think that sewing is a good way to be involved in this kind of process because like, I don't buy clothes. Like I don't I think so. Yeah. I, I don't buy do. any clothes. I have not bought a pair of underwear in eight years. That's I haven't fun. bought a bra in three years. I make Excellent. all of that. Right. Fantastic. It is, which is, which is great, which I love, but I also have a smart Alec of a son mm-hmm. and he likes fast fashion. And I'm explaining to him as someone he's committed to issues of justice and racial equity and black liberation, which is something we believe in as a family. And I'm like, you are participating when you buy these clothes, mm-hmm. you are exploiting children, your own age, sometimes mm-hmm. younger, and they are making these fabric, they're making these clothes and they're not being properly compensated. You need to rethink this, right? Mm-hmm. He is like 10. He was at the time yeah. he was 10. And he said, mom, if my clothes are made by these kids, who do you think is making your fabric? Probably the same kids making your fabric. So I don't see the difference. And then I was like, go to your room until you agree with me. 
but but I don't I to be honest I don't actually know much about textile weaving and whether or not there's child exploitation involved in that process and you've given me some he's given me something to think about but at the end of the day you should show him you know videos and images in Cantamonto market because regardless of how we feel that's a system that fast fashion fast consumption has built and your sewing habits did not aid in that in the creation of that in the creation of that another thing that also really shocked me was about the the synthetic fibers where yes. you said that they have tested placenta which is the thing y'all if you've had a baby a person a pregnant person has the connects you to your baby food that's how that's how you feed the baby it attaches through your all that stuff and you think that this is like a sacred connection between way that bodies get built in the human body and all that and they tested y'all and they found the some of the same elements of synthetic fiber could you talk about that like yeah so lord fibers for people that don't know fossil fuel fibers so your polyesters your acrylics your your workout wear gear most of that is synthetic and it comes from fossil fuels which oil that's what it is and there has been a massive push by the fossil fuel industry to really infiltrate our fashion industry with these fibers so that we always have a need for their product because they could tell that us environmentalists would start getting on them about the fact that they're trashing the planet that we all live on with this system. So they wanted to make sure to put polyester into everything, you know, or even think about like Vaseline, petroleum jelly. jelly. Yes, yes, yes. That's in everything as well, you know, which it's one of those things where I was raised putting Vaseline on my body, smearing fossil fuel on my body, you know, to like, it is petrol. It says petroleum right on the thing. So there's been a massive push by the fossil fuel industry to get oil products into everything. And we have definitely just eaten it up in the fashion industry. We've got currently 60% of the fabrics that are in existence and the clothes that are in existence come from fossil fuels. Now, fossil fuels, fabrics shed. And every time you wash that polyester garment, Mm -hmm. microfibers are getting into the water supply because of the way you're washing it. But there's some solutions for this. We could actually have mandates where every washing machine has to have a false, has to have a filter for that. There are filters that you can actually attach to your washing machine to catch these fibers. But you know what would be a real level up if every washing machine was required to have it? That's how we get this fix of regulation. But additionally, we have to stop the production of virgin polyester. That has to stop. There is enough polyester on the planet where we probably don't have to produce more for the next 30 years. And they're still just churning it out. You know what I mean? And so there's a lot of things happening here that it's important to recognize. But in general, the thing that you can do as a person is start skipping that stuff in the store where you see it. Sometimes you can't avoid it. A polar fleece, you know, that's going to be, I've got a polar fleece from when I was, you know, in the in high school I think it's like 1997 still going strong because it turns out that stuff's indestructible Um, and that's why it's not going to dissolve in a landfill exactly so those are the things you know but we don't have to have the polyester t-shirt we don't have to have the polyester dress there are things that we can't avoid swimwear swimwear is a tough one you know dancewear I haven't bought dancewear in seven years because it's all polyester basically yeah There's a lot of stuff where it's hard to avoid, Mm -hmm. but I think when we're shopping for our clothing, start reading those tags. And if it looks like, you know, it's more than 10% polyester, put it back, Mm -hmm. honestly, because this is going to be our demise. Like we, by 2050, there will be more microfibers in the ocean than there are stars in the sky at the rate we're going at. Wow. You all think about that. When you think about a beautiful starry night 
and you can look up and see. We know how many stars there are. Well, we don't know how many. We know there's a lot. Infinite, infinite, infinite amounts of stars. And, and the idea of having that be unnumbered in our water. Yeah. And here's the thing, like microfibers, you know, they're still testing to see like the effects on the human body, but I guarantee you it's not good. The stuff that I'm starting to read is starting to scare me. So every time you wash that polyester outfit that you didn't need to buy or whatever, that is shedding Mm -hmm. and that's going to go into the water and it's going to end up in the ocean. Our fish is going to eat it. And then we will eat the fish. It will end up in your soil, your, your vegetables that you grow will grow, you know, because you've used the water to water it. So we've really got to tamp down on virgin polyesters being produced. We're good. We have enough of that. We need to limit it and we need to stop it because that's just one small thing that could really have disastrous effects. And I think it, we need to start pumping the bricks there. Yeah. I really do appreciate that because what you've given us is a clear example of something that is harmful and ways to remedy it, right? Make less of it, you know, improve the washing machine so that we're not like, in addition to cleaning so it's our not just going straight into the water supply. Yeah, like this is, and I really do feel like globalization has, has really put a lot of blinders up, especially for Americans, where we don't think about, you know, who makes your clothes. Like you don't- I think everything is harmless because it's out of sight, out of mind. Exactly. Or exactly. the acronym NIMBY, which NIMBY. is not in my backyard. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I am so grateful to you for this conversation. I'm going to ask you one last question. I've asked everybody this question. The slogan for the Stitch Please podcast is that we help you get your stitch together. (laughs) And so I'm going to ask you, what advice would you give our listeners today? If you wanted to, if you had to, if someone asked you, hey, how can I get my stitch together? What would you tell them? What advice would you give someone to help them get their stitch together? Buy less of everything, buy less fabric, start using that scrap pile fabric, start recycling, swap more, stop tying your happiness to buying brand new things. Start investigating your shopping habits. Even if you're like, I can only afford to shop from this place and that place. That's fine. But you don't have to buy two items every time you're there that you know you don't need because your wardrobe's already got plenty of good things that you can wear. Investigate how you're participating in systems and why you're participating in systems, regardless of where you fall on the socioeconomic scale. Ask yourself some hard questions about the shopping we're doing. I love it. And on that note, Aja Barber, thank you. This has been a delight. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed our conversation. You've been listening to the Stitch Please podcast, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. We appreciate you supporting us by listening to the podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, you can contact us at blackwomenstitch at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do that by supporting us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and you can find Black Women Stitch there in the Patreon directory. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help support the project with things like editing, transcripts, and other things to strengthen the podcast. And finally, if financial support is not something you can do right now, you can really, really help the podcast by rating it and reviewing it anywhere you listen to podcasts that allows you to review them. So I know that not all podcast directories or services allow for reviews, but for those who do, for those that have like a star rating or just ask for a few comments, if you could share those comments and say nice things about us at the Stitch Please podcast, that is incredibly helpful. Thank you so much. Come back next week and we'll help you get your stitch together. Stitch together.